0: This is a preview edition of the Storymakers Institute. Become a paid subscriber to access the full episode. Just visit thestorymakersinstitute.substack.com forward slash subscribe. This is the Storymakers Institute with Joel Carnegie. And we're back with a whole new series of the Storymakers Institute as powered by you. This is your front row pass to the world's most intriguing storytellers. And this week on the show... We're going to say hello to multi Walkley award-winning author, journalist and broadcaster Tracy Spicer. Now in this past year, we've all gone a bit mad for AI, but have we accidentally unleashed Frankenstein's monster? And what are we going to do about it now? The cat's out of the bag. Tracy has some thoughts. Her new book is called Man Made, how the bias of the past is being built into the future. Essential listening for all storytellers. Enjoy this conversation with Tracy Spicer. Tracy Spicer, welcome to the Storymakers Institute. Thank you for having me on, Joel. Take us back to the moment when your son uttered the six words that would become the catalyst of almost a decade's worth of investigation.
1: He was 11 years of age, and my husband and I, in a moment of appalling parenting, had allowed him to watch South Park in the morning the adult cartoon series, so we could get an extra hour of sleep in. Perfectly fair. (laughs) Totally fair. Thank you for supporting my (laughs) shocking parenting. And he turned to me and said, Mum, I want a robot slave. I said, darling, what are you talking about? Anyway, he showed me the episode in which Cartman, a very naughty boy, was ordering around his Amazon Alexa like he was some kind of colonial master and as a lifelong feminist and journalist, I had an epiphany that the idea about women and girls being servile from the 1950s is being built into the chatbots we use in our homes, because I quickly realised through a little bit of research that the chatbots in the business and finance sector, well, almost all of them have male voices because they're viewed as being more credible and authoritative.
0: So for those who haven't been breathlessly following along to all of the twists and turns of the development of artificial AI, who are the players and why is this so important?
1: A lot of people think that artificial intelligence was developed at a place called the Dartmouth Conference in the 1950s, where 10 white men sat down and came up with the term artificial intelligence. But really, it's been around since uh, time immemorial. I mean, even the ancient Greeks had their versions of artificial intelligence, you know, beings that were created from clay or mythical beings that weren't actually human but were artificial. So the idea's been around as long as humanity but this Dartmouth conference popularised it in the corporate sector and that's part of the problem with the so-called origin story of AI. It was all around how can we make more money for business? There was no conversation about ethics or humanity or bias or discrimination or even, God forbid, safety. And that's why we've ended up here now in the fourth industrial revolution, which is what we're all living through. And often it's hard to see a revolution when you're right in the middle of it, where during the pandemic, a lot of the companies just went off willy nilly. And we know with the explosion of generative AI, uh, courtesy of Sam Altman at OpenAI late last year, that it has become an AI arms race. And we're all pawns in a game being played by billionaires in Silicon Valley.
0: Yes, I recently heard um, quite a good quote which went something along the lines of, um, if you're not the masters of this, you're going to become the slaves of it.
1: That's right. And that's one of the conclusions I come to in my book, Man Made, that, look, we can't just say don't use technology, don't use AI. It's effectively in Maslow's hierarchy of needs now. We need it as much as air, water and food to survive as humans. So we need to learn how to control it before it controls us. Having said that, there's a lot of uh, narrative around AI is going to end humanity, and certainly that is possible. But I think some of the narrative is being driven by big tech because they want to take our attention away from the everyday erosion of human rights that's happening in the present. They want to talk about a terrifying future that may not happen. So we look over there instead of looking at the bias and the discrimination and the lack of ethics that's happening now, because if they have to focus on that, then it means they have to spend money and they make fewer billions than they're making right now and they're desperate to push back against regulation
0: and legislation. So you think part of this is a misdirection?
1: Yeah, it's a misdirection. Look, you know, look over here, here's the shiny thing, you know, robots and Terminator and all of this stuff. The very real threat to humanity, interestingly, comes from an intersectional perspective where AI intersects with warfare i mean the killer robot scenario is actually real uh where it intersects with climate change where it intersects with all of the other big things threatening humanity. But the biggest threat is the misinformation and disinformation that's propagated and exacerbated by AI on social media because of the polarization of people's opinions. We will see more wars. We will see, as someone I interviewed for the book said, we will see Donald Trump on steroids in a lot of countries around the world. So that's what we need to focus on right now. A lot of legislators have actually admitted that they failed when social media exploded, to regulate it properly and they don't want to make that mistake with artificial intelligence.
0: If you look back at some of the trail of mess that the digital age is leaving behind, whether you're looking at Meta's questionable interest in democracy or ChatGPT gobbling up all of the books uh, like a hungry um, (laughs) Pac-Man, now the New York Times is currently suing OpenAI and Microsoft over use of copyrighted material. Paint us a picture, if you will, of the rabbit hole uh, that AI is taking us down.
1: Oh, yes. In fact, my first book, The Good Girl Stripped Bare, that was gobbled up by Books 3, one of the apps that you're talking about, That effectively steals writers' copyright, steals our entire books. Similarly, apps like uh, Midjourney, Dali and Stable Diffusion, which are image generators, scrape billions of images from artists around the world to create what they call a unique image. Well, certainly it's unique as a finished product, but it breaches the copyright of all of those original images. We desperately need a successful test case in the courts, preferably in the US, because they're still the leaders in technology and the rest of the world tends to follow. So artists, authors and creators can have some kind of compensation for their work effectively being stolen. Mm -hmm. A really salient example, both about the bias and about copyright, was when we tried to design the cover for my book the graphic designer Meng Coach said, look, let's use AI to design <laughs> that because that's a topic of the book. He wanted to start a conversation about the many jobs that are being lost because of this technology in this industrial revolution. We put in some words into the MidJourney app. Look, they're the world's easiest things to use, honestly, and that's the problem. They're so cheap and accessible and <laughs> easy. It's easy to breach copyright. I wanted to an image of a strong robot woman looking to the future with hope but concern. <laughs> yeah, totally. A, a, a specific image we put in 12 words. The image that came up was a highly sexualized gold robot woman with a tiny waist, massive breasts, and huge biceps. So that's because- pretty
0: realistic, right? Like that's 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 normal. <laughs>
1: That's right, because the algorithm read strong as being physically strong, not necessarily mm-hmm. a strong, confident kind of person. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the ways that the bias is built into it. You know, it, it inevitably sexualizes, particularly women and girls. So going down the rabbit hole to answer your question, once you start looking into this, you realise how far legislation is behind the rampant advance of the technology.
0: When you discovered that your book had been gobbled up, what feeling came up in you?
1: Oh, it's funny you should ask that because I'd read about this issue before and I thought, oh, that's terrible, that's no good, but I didn't have an emotional, visceral response. When I searched the name of my book and realised it had been stolen, it was almost like a punch in the gut because when you work in the creative arts you know, certainly use your your intellect, but you're emotionally connected to the work that you create, like this wonderful podcast. You know, people call it content but it comes from your brain and it comes from your heart. So I felt really hurt. I felt wounded and then I felt angry (laughs) and immediately wanted to join any kind of class action that was happening because Mm. if we don't take action now, we're blithely accepting that the tech giants can continue to make profit margins larger than the GDPs of nation states without any kind of recourse. But Honestly, there's a deeper problem here. I'm speaking as a privileged woman living in Australia. What we're seeing actually is neocolonialism now within the tech sector. The capital and the wealth sits in the global north, predominantly Silicon Valley. The unpaid and underpaid work is done in the global south, predominantly in developing countries. One example is workers in Kenya having to go through horrible images on the internet, pornography, violence, all sorts of things to label it so we in the West don't have to soil our eyes by looking at it. These kind of working conditions... Are effectively the modern day salt mines. People are being paid next to nothing. They're dealing with horrible psychological trauma having to look at those images in order for the tech companies to keep growing. There's also this thing, I don't know whether you've read about it, called mm. participation washing. Have you heard of this? No, tell me. If you look in Google's glossy diversity brochure, it talks about the percentage of its employees um, from Latin America or from Africa and their wonderful diversity and inclusion situation. But a lot of the people they're showing photos of and telling stories about are earning probably one millionth of the amount of most of the executives in the country who are living in the United States. And that's why they call it participation washing, because they're saying they're diverse, but there's still that huge gap in wealth between the highest paid employees and people who are being paid next to nothing.
0: Gosh, it's such a kind of, uh, once you start (laughs) unlocking the Rubik's Cube, all of a sudden, all these things start falling out. So just from the one statement of your son wanting a slave robot to then unpacking a pretty hefty global issue, that's quite a journey you to take on not to mention the fact that you've been caught up in it as well where did the lawsuit end up the class action is is that proceeding
1: oh yes it's still going and the one being led by sarah silverman silverman which is one of the very first ones is still going as well about her content being stolen so as far as i know at this point in time we have no outcome but hopefully a precedent will be set But we'll be seeing an explosion in lawsuits around artificial intelligence in the coming months and years, because one area we haven't touched on is facial recognition technology, which is being used uh, increasingly exponentially across the United States. There's the privacy issue there with cameras everywhere. But the issue I'm interested in is the really the trouble the technology has identifying people of colour. Now they're using this technology to work out whether people from south of the border in the United States can come north and if these people have English as a second language or if they're a person of colour and the decisions made by an algorithm their applications are being rejected simply because of the way that they look and sound. The facial and voice recognition is also being used for things like if you're applying for credit or a home loan or a job. So this is affecting people's lives every single day.
0: And in many respects, people's experience of it, uh, of, of some of this technology is, is just in the front end, in the chat GPT prompt. And yet what sits behind all of this is this ecosystem of, of as you've discovered, disadvantage and discrimination
1: yes that we don't see another classic example which almost made me fall off my chair when I found the research was about a Nigerian tech worker who tried to use an automated soap dispenser at a Marriott hotel he put his hands under it didn't work for his hands but it worked for the hands of his white colleague and it worked for a white piece of paper Oh, you know, crazy stuff and you think well how does that happen that makes no sense this has been distributed through Marriott hotels around the world it's light sensor technology and the people who developed it were just a group of three or four young guys in Silicon Valley who only tested it out on themselves and their friends and thought, oh, well, this will work for everybody. Now, that's what sits behind a lot of these designs. They're not inclusive. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, I mean, it's annoying if it's an automated soap dispenser, but that same technology is used in self-driving cars, which come to pedestrian crossings in testing and can't recognise about half of the population and might run, run them over. So when you say what sits behind, crazy, crazy stories, but can be a matter of life and death.
0: And when you trace it right back to the beginning of that invention and the circumstances around in which it was created, you can very easily see how all of a sudden with a bit of money and a bit of venture capitalism sort of thrown in, all of a sudden something can be kind of immediately global without a great sense of thought that sat behind it. Given that this show is primarily driven towards story and story-making, I wanted to return to this kind of concept of content. There's something in this word that whilst feels vaguely, superficially um, global, also sort of strips out the kind of essence of the thing that you're creating in my view, but I'd love to hear your take on that.
1: Oh, yes, and you can see that on ChatGPT every time you use it. It is phenomenal technology. Being able to write an 8,000 word essay in a couple of seconds is extraordinary. And I I'd be interested to hear whether you have found this when you've looked at stuff that's been written by it. it doesn't have the heart. It doesn't have the mm. humanity. It's very mathematical and formulaic, which makes it good for job applications, sending emails, even, and I'm horrified that I'm even going to say this, but writing news stories because that is effectively that mathematical pyramid kind of style. It's very good at that, but when it comes to Creativity, what it means to be human, and also unique styles of writing, something a little bit different. You know, I'm thinking about something like John Kerouac's On the Road, right? Mm. Something that's written in an entirely different way. It does not have the capacity for unique. Creative thought, and fortunately, we still retain that as humans. What does concern me is when the robots do become sentient. Which last time I did some research on this, they're expecting that'll happen in around 2050. Which is- I thought you were
0: going to say like August. I mean,
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right, August 25. So
0: 2050, 2050, sentient robots.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's mm. uh, it's pretty soon, which is scary. And look, there there are some great things that robots could do if they were sentient. They could. I know they had an app, a psychology robot that was being used in the US, which actually had really good results for people who couldn't afford to go and see a psychologist. It was actually sort of like an emotive, empathetic chatbot But then similar to when ChatGPT goes off the rails, if you say the wrong thing or ask it the wrong question or say something it hasn't heard before, it can give you some really terrible advice. (laughs) It started telling people to harm themselves and they had to pull it off the market. So I like the thought of uh, sentient robots in some kind of. You know, healthcare areas, caring for people with dementia or Alzheimer's. You know, there could be some applications in medicine that would be really valuable. But in the creative arts, I just can't see it being effective. I guess
0: you uh, do see on occasion. You know, like the the robot piano player and, and and so on. But I just, when I think robots, I just think robots killing each other on the on the battlefield, some sort of dystopian future. I find it I find it weird when the future is sort of depicted in books or films or television shows or whatever that that. It's often painted as dystopian. It kind of robots have, have kind of got control of something and that injustice is just kind of baked into the future. And I I guess I'm wondering, therefore, whose fantasies are we actually playing out? What childhood fantasies are they, um, are they wanting to bring into reality?
1: Fascinating because a lot of the people developing this technology are guys who watched science fiction growing up. Some of that is great. It's tremendous lateral thinking. But in many ways, they're creating devices and algorithms that with machine learning, they don't know where it will end up. They know the start point, but they don't know where it will end. When ChatGPT came out, a lot of other companies had similar technology, but they were holding back to do the safety testing on it because machine learning is effectively where the machine learns from its own past experiences, often without human supervision. And when you think about that, who knows where that could end. You might be interested in a new movement that moves past the dichotomy of dystopia and utopia. Have you heard about protopia?
0: That sounds fun.
1: It's cool, right? (laughs) It's a concept that uh, was developed by the co-founding editor of Wired magazine, Kevin Kelly. And he characterizes protopia as incremental change towards the future that is good for humanity, incorporating technology on the way. So it's not extremely positive AI is going to be a boon for everybody. We won't have to work. The robots will do all the work and we'll lie in beautiful bucolic fields. It's not that. Uh, that
0: disappointing
1: (laughs) idea rather and it's not you know dystopia that we're all going to die from the killer robots it's that very sensible idea of let's use technology to help humanity but we need to be the masters and there's a huge protopian movement happening around the world
0: man-made how the biases of the past is being built into the future uh, is tracy spice's new book it can be found online and in your local independent bookstore i thought we could run a little experiment a little game that i'm going to call a spoonful of sugar brought to you by a online ai tool a quote dedicated to generating unlimited amounts of unique inspirational quotes for endless enrichment of pointless human existence
1: oh i love this
0: i'm going to send you a little link yeah. that's it for this preview edition of the storymakers institute become a paid subscriber to access the full episode just visit the storymakers forward slash subscribe and show us the love by leaving a review for the show on apple podcasts or spotify and tell your mates about the show we'd be most grateful i'll catch you next week